I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Yes, we are back with another edition of another Philly Sports Talk Show. I am Philadelphia Daily News columnist David Murphy, joined by Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Mike Sielski, who has just gotten done reading his copy of Sports Illustrated that came in the mail today. Actually, read it online. Read it online. Um, Did you pay for that? No. No. Mm. Which explains why our business is in the state it's in. My, my Sports Illustrated used to come on Thursdays. Yes. My first one had... Uh, Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey Jr. on the cover. Wow. I don't know why. I remember like the first five uh, Sports Illustrated I got because it was such a momentous occasion in my life. My grandmother used to get me a, a Sports Illustrated subscription every every year for my birthday. And it was wow. honestly the single most influential occurrence impetus for my eventual writing career. How about that? That's interesting to know. Was there a writer in particular who you admired? Yes. I used to flip right to the back and read Rick Riley. Oh, yeah. Before yeah. all others. And then as my uh, my mental palate matured, <laughs> I was still a big Rick Riley fan who was quite a, a phenomenal writer back then. Oh, as a, as a, as a long-form magazine writer, he was And even, even his, his, uh, tremendous. his early columns when, yeah. when they moved him back there. There's a reason when they, mo- they moved him back there, but that's my kind of writing taste matured i, I became a big uh, gary smith mm-hmm. obviously uh sl price fan oh yeah you're the two of the best are they two still the there are, are either Ga- one? gary is actually uh retired um semi-retired uh i saw him in june he's working on a novel and he's sal explorers yeah uh, fellow little sal explorer class 75 uh he's, he's working on a novel he's working on a novel that he's been writing on spec for the last two years mm. Um, every once in a while he pops up when, when Muhammad Ali died, he did a piece for SI.com and, uh, and SL Price has a book out about, uh, high school football in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania that mm. I've got. Uh, it's called, um, oh shoot. Uh, I haven't broken into it yet. Uh, playing beyond the whistle or something to that effect. Um, but it's a combination of history of football and history of kind of the labor movement and the steel mills in Western Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm looking forward to digging into that. So as a, as a perceptive individual, even from, Afar, I can tell that people are currently wondering why we are talking about Sports Illustrated. Yes. And the long lead-in is to a story that Chris Ballard mm-hmm. has just published that details Sam Hinkie's... Life after the Sixers, His basically. spirit quest. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, a little different from the one Howie Roseman apparently went on for that well, year. Well, you were that- telling me... I, now, I did not read the... the Profile, but apparently he has a beard and a shaved head at this yeah, point. Yeah, he, um, Sam you know, Hinkie, I mean, he is he has skewed the whole, you know, blue blazer, white button shirt, uh, you know, outfit that he wore to every single Sixers game and every single public event you ever saw him at. Uh, and actually, Ballard gets into why Hinky wore that outfit, uh, uh, every single time you saw him in the article. Well, let's talk about that because that you were explaining that to me, yeah, basically, and that might this might actually get at. At the uh, crux right. of the Sam Hinkie uh, experiment in Philadelphia. Experiment in Philadelphia. So, all right. So, just to set it up, um, Ballard went out to Palo Alto, where Hinkie and his family now live, um, to try to be at the center of, you know, the the on the cusp. Excuse me. Um, you know, uh, really forward thinking movement. You know, Silicon Valley, all that stuff. So, after a month of kind of 
It's could you're a lot of persuading. It's where a lot of other people who like to smell their farts like, yeah. go, to, go to live. <laughs> um, uh, after a lot of texting and cajoling and persuading, uh, Ballard gets Hinky to agree to you know follow him around for a while and they write this piece. And one of the things that gets mentioned in the article is that uh, a la Albert Einstein, a la for all you classic sci-fi film lovers out there, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in The Fly, Hinky would is wear... Is this the same Jeff Goldblum who was the president in Independence Day? No, that's Bill Pullman. Jeff okay. Goldblum was the si- was the scientist in Independence Day. Okay, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Hinky would wear the same outfit every single day because like Einstein and like Goldblum's character... Um, he believes it. The, the fewer decisions you have to make during the course of a day, the more likely you are to be right in the decisions you make. So all the time that, uh, you know, the average person takes to figure out, am I wearing the blue sweater today or the, you know, the, the green shirt, whatever, he cuts, it, cuts down on that and just, boom, same thing every day. Now I can move on and start thinking big thoughts. See, now my first reaction to that, and, and this is coming from someone who was largely a Sam Hinkie proponent throughout his... Uh, his uh, experiment here in mm-hmm. philadelphia uh, you know my exp- my my response to that would be unlike albert einstein or put it this way albert einstein was not running a basketball team right uh, i think the phrase delusion of grandeur might come yeah. up just a little bit yeah i mean like when you're trying to build the world's first nuclear weapon or you are trying to figure out how gravity works uh, <laughs> or why isaac or, or trying to figure out why Isaac Newton was yeah. wrong. <laughs> I could see perhaps uncluttering your mind a bit by yeah, narrowing your wardrobe choices. But mm-hmm. as we're currently seeing with the Sixers, this is not nearly as complicated a, a process as Sam Hinkie, I think, at times wanted people to believe it is. And I say that because the Sixers, the Sixers essentially are where they are right now because... They got the right draft pick at the right time, and, and the current draft pick that they got three years ago is working out. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I obviously was, um, if you were going to label anybody anything in the whole debate over the process or anything like that, I was a proponent of the process, quote-unquote, and a proponent of Hinky, insofar as I saw the logic of what he was doing just from a accumulation of talent standpoint. You want to get good in the NBA, you got to get great players. Easiest way to get great players is to draft. Right, them. but that's not a complicated notion. Right, that's not a complicated notion. And, and what the... the what the article in SI reveals um, is how much, I guess, kind of, if you want to, I mean, certainly ego, it's it's interesting to say ego, because on one hand, I can totally see that in in what Ballard writes about Hinky um, and the way he thinks and how he kind of sees himself. But by the same token, there were times um, quite frequently where Hinky, I would argue, acted without any ego at all. Um, you know, even in the rare, you know, instances where he would speak publicly while he was here, um, you know, so it, it, it really showed him kind of complex and how, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are going to be fans in Philadelphia who are going to read it and say, boy, he's really out there. Um, and he's so full of himself and thank God he's gone, um, uh, because he just didn't get it and didn't get what the NBA was all about. And there are going to be other people who read this and go, good Lord, it would have been cool to follow the Sixers because this guy is really smart and it would have been fun to see what he did, whether it was good or bad, over a few more years to see how the team turned out. You see, so my, my thing with Hinky, 
and again, on a macro standpoint, I, I completely agree with his philosophy and strategy that he employed while he was here. But we're talking about a basketball team that has, what, 12 mm-hmm. roster spots, 12 active roster spots. Yes. Um, you know, when you look at, we talk about the position that Sam Hinkie put the Sixers in to now be a team that people actually want to watch. Mm-hmm. And I will be one of them tonight. This yes. is Wednesday, by the way, that we're recording this. I'm heading down to watch uh, Okafor and Embiid yeah. perhaps play together against the Kings uh, this Wednesday night. But really, what when you look at the, the Sixers roster as currently constituted, would it be any – what did Sam Hinkie actually do besides get them draft picks to, to draft Embiid, Okafor, Noel? Uh, I mean, that – Besides the easy, obvious thing, I guess is what I'm saying. Like all these second round picks that he hoarded, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he didn't really do anything. I mean, to me, there's just there's just very few variables even to work with on mm-hmm. a basketball team. Like, it, and, and that was kind of the whole point of the process. It was more about calling a spade a spade mm-hmm. than anything complex and intricate. Like Billy Bean, you know, I mean, Bill, put it this way: when you look at like a guy like Billy Bean, mm-hmm. or when you look at what the you know the Browns are trying to do in Cleveland, kind of some of these revolutionaries in other sports. Right, you're talking about a, like you're a talking 53 about man mo- roster in the NFL, and, and well, a, like in the, in the in Major League Baseball, it takes. I mean, I mean, it is an organization, like mm-hmm. the way a, a Fortune 500 company is a, an organization. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, multiple fronts, multiple markets that you're dealing with, multiple you know talent markets, multiple leagues. You know. It's a sprawling, vast organization, and then even just on the Major League Baseball level, you've got 25 roster spots right. and and you know 162 game season. Same thing with the NFL; you got 53 mm-hmm. roster spots. You got a seven round draft. In the NBA, you've got 12 roster spots, two talent markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and in the one talent market, the one that matters most, the draft, the amateur market. There's like four or five guys. You know, you could do everything right, but like those second round picks aren't aren't you know, which of his second round picks look like, you know, cornerstones for the future at this point. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. You are basically saying that you can make this harder than it actually is. Yes, I, and that's what it sounds like. As much as I agree with Hinky, there does seem to be a suggestion from what mm-hmm. from your retelling of this article that, you know, he may have overestimated uh the complexity yeah. required to, to rebuild. Yeah, I mean, an organization. I, th- I think that's fair. I also he admits in the article. Like also, put it this way: if I'm an, if if I'm someone who, who is unsold on Sam Hinkie within the organization with the NBA in the NBA, and you know we're sitting down at lunch or to have a beer sometime, mm-hmm. and he starts telling me about how he only wears blue blazers so he can cut down mm-hmm. on the decisions he needs to make. My, my I'm gonna I'm not gonna like the guy, <laughs> you know. And I think there's a lot of I mean, people. Yeah, guy, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who would feel the same way. I'm I'm more intrigued by that in a way, um, and and how little of that he would reveal while he was here, um, you know. And and he did admit in the article, for instance, that uh, he failed at a at a communication level. Mm-hmm. That he could have bought himself, you know, and we've talked about that before, that he could have bought himself more time if he had just played the game, the media game, you know, go on the radio shows, pay some lip service to the Big Five or Philadelphia basketball, you know, play the game, you mm-hmm. know, as as other coaches and executives have done. Um, you know, in, in terms of what he did as a GM, I, I wonder that this is part of the reason why, and the article says explicitly that he was forced out, which is interesting. 
um, even though, you know, ostensibly he resigned. The, the it, And it's one of kind of the intriguing parts of the piece that I wish Ballard had gotten into more was it just kind of says it flat out. He was forced out, which, you know, okay, how do you know that? Yeah, but I mean, the whole thing was kind of a forcing out, even if the... No, it was. I mean, once they bring Jerry Colangelo in, right. you know, you, you know your days are numbered. But I, I guess what I'm... It made me more curious about a guy who I've always been curious about. And, um, you know, the, the one thing that Hinky would, would say uh, is that he doesn't like um, it, public intellectual arrogance, which seems at times to be in complete conflict with really who he is and who he at who in these kind of rare situations he he has uh allowed people in the media to show him to be which is interesting i don't know if he sees that contradiction or not um you know on the one hand there have been situations where he could have embarrassed a media member in a press conference over a question that shouldn't have been asked because the premise of it was false. But he didn't do it. You know, and there have been coaches and executives who, in this town, who would have jumped at that opportunity to say, you in the media, I mean, gosh, Doug Peterson practically did it the other day, yesterday, Tuesday, saying, you know, if you don't really play football at this level, you don't really know what's going on. Hinkie never did that and could have done it. But by the same token, you have this long piece in Sports Illustrated that that shows him at Stanford giving a guest lecture and going to Facebook's headquarters and listening in on talks and and all kinds of things that you know you read it and you go really all this guy's this guy's an ex NBA general manager like it go unless he just loves it that much that he can't do anything else like okay well go do something that you know, provides for the greater good a little bit more than Joe just figuring out that Joel Embiid's going to be a really good basketball player. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at. And, and again, this is more for the sake of the argument. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I think that the Sixers did Sam Hinkie dirty, and I think that he yeah, had I do earned, too. I think he had earned the right mm-hmm. to remain on and, and continue seeing this. It's the same kind of thing. We've, we've had this discussion about Chip Kelly. It's the same kind of thing. Right. If you're going to commit to hire that right. guy, exactly. you better commit to see it through. That being said, just to kind of, and again, I think this gets at kind of his weakness. Like saying or portraying oneself as um, disinclined to intellectual arrogance or to, mm-hmm. to, you know, verbalize a policy for oneself of not being intellectually right. arrogant is almost intellectually arrogant in, in itself. itself. Yeah. You know, it's almost like an intellectual paternalism. Right. You know, where it's like, Oh, sweet little boy. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. You know, yeah. I don't yeah. expect you to understand this, yeah. you know? And I think that that might be the kind of the, you know, the subtext that rubbed people the wrong way where what, you know, he wasn't look to be intellect to be intellectually unarrogant is when somebody does not understand why you are doing something to explain it in terms mm-hmm. that they can understand. Right. And he he so refused he, to do that. He yeah. refused to explain anything, yeah. saying, "Trust me, I I know what's yeah. good." I mean, he said it when he came in, and and every like once a year, he kind of re-upped that same reasoning. Um, but you're right; he could have done, and I think again that would have bought him more time uh, and more goodwill. One of the interesting things that the article notes, though, um, is that th- there's a scene where he's answering a question at at a panel discussion of some kind, and someone at he he uses his uh, his 
he's talking about kind of keeping your eye on the ball from an intellectual um, standpoint. You know, are you, are you moving forward in your organization or company? And, you know, are you keeping all the things and are you allowing these other things to kind of w- distract you? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I started thinking this way early in college and then I met my wife and I allowed her to become a distraction. And he said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. You know, um, I'm, I'm glad that I did that. It's the best thing, you know, I could have done. Um, and that's going to happen too. Uh, you know, and it dovetailed, you know, with something he had told me, I guess a year or two ago, when I had asked him about being patient with the process and do you understand why people want, you know, everybody, you know, want the organization to just get on with it, get, get good as fast as you can. And he, he told me, Hey, look, I knew on the first date with my wife that I was going to marry her. I didn't propose for another year and a half because that's who I am. I can wait. And it was it just, there, there, it seems to me there's a lot going on with this guy. Some of it really, really interesting and smart. Some of it uh, kind of incongruous to the person you think he must be. And some of it where you go, like, is he even really human <laughs> in some ways in the way he thinks uh, and acts? Yeah, I mean, like the... the the wife thing, I don't really understand because, like, that's just not normal. Like, that's not abnormal to wait for a year and a half to propose to your wife, even if you suspect that you. Yeah, but I mean, I guess the way he thought of it and the way he framed it, um, you know, he thought of it as. I mean, I guess he thought of it as part of indicative of his personality. But I think that, it is indicative of his personality if he thought that was like, look at me. I like. It, like yeah, maybe it's almost like he's way too meta. Yeah, he almost looks at himself way too meta. Where <laughs> it's like, be. oh, this is this is an indication of you know I, that I can pass the marshmallow test mm-hmm. because I can wait a year and a half to ask my wife to marry me, even though normal people are just like, yeah, that's what people. Yeah, do. that's what people do. You know do. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, all right. So, case in point, like, I think actually, like, I think, I think Hinky, if you were to actually sit down and like dissect their personalities, I think like Hinky and Pat Gillick are probably more alike than people think and I, and I say that because like Pat Gillick like his, like they're both like almost like 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 uh like I was gonna I don't savantish know. What? yeah like I, I wanted like I, I was gonna say on the spectrum mm-hmm. but like I don't I don't want I didn't want to say that in like a offhanded lighthearted <laughs> way but like they both have that kind of like their mind is always put it this way yeah. their mind's always running yes you know and yes. like I bet you if you look at like Albert Einstein, a lot of people like mm-hmm. they walk around like Gillick was one of these guys where like he never said hi to me, you right. know, and you would like walk past them in the hallway and like he just kind of like look right through you, mm-hmm. you know, but I never took offense to it. Mm-hmm. Like I never took it as an arrogant kind of thing because you could tell he was all like it was just like he was into something. He in was always. Head. Yeah, he was just he's one of these guys who's always I mean, the story about Peck Gillick was like he could remember everybody's phone number that right. he ever. You know, and like if your mind is programmed to remember stuff like that, like it's not going to be necessarily programmed to program to like say, hey, how's it going to the guy? Another human approaching must say hi. You know, like if you got if you got, you know, Mike Sealski's childhood number bubbling through your head at that point. Right. You know, and and like Pat Gillick, like he didn't he probably wore the same thing every time I saw him, Mm -hmm. you know, like he wore a Tommy Bahama shirt, you know, but I think the difference between Pat Gillick and Sam Hinkie is Pat Gillick. I don't know that he looked at it. Like he thought about it, mm-hmm. he was just like, "Yeah, I wear the same thing every day." And yeah. I, I bet you, if you were to unpeel that, 
it's it's part of you right. know the sacrifice he has to make to always have his mind working on yes. something else. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, but he never is like, oh, this is why I'm better than other people is because you know I only wear a Tommy Bahama shirt and well, thus I have more intellectual. I'm gonna energy go. To I'm gonna go out and buy like. 14 light blue collared shirts and hopefully right. my columns will get better. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. Like, like, like I'm an, like put it this way. I'm an idiot. Um, like I'm going to, like my mind is always going, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily about anything productive, but like, um, and I lose things a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I lost my, my driver's license in Seattle, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I don't choose to do that. And it frustrates me when I do that. But I know that I do that a lot of times because like, I'm not thinking about mm-hmm. my driver's license. I'm thinking about something else. Right. Right. Like, and again, I, I, I think Hinky might be like that. Except yeah, I think it's possible. You should read the story. Maybe we, we I will. You know, talk about it more next week, I guess. Uh, if we can get Keith Pompey or, or Bob Cooney on, I'd be curious to get their thoughts on it too. The other thing too that you have to keep in mind, and this is like frustrated sports writer talk, is I tried. I had Hinky on the phone. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And You've been trying to. I had been trying to do this story, um, and I had him on the phone for a half hour Trying to persuade him. When, when? When did you have? Uh, when was it? Right after. Yeah, um, right after he got let go, right? Yeah, after or, he got like after he uh, rejoined the world on Twitter. Okay. Whenever that was, I think sometime this fall. And does he have a tr- Twitter picture? Or is he still an egg? No, he's he's a Twitter picture. Is it bald? Is he bald with a beard? No. Okay. No. Um. So I'm and I'm trying to convince him. You know, let me come out there. Let me follow you around. People would be interested. No, no, no. Don't want to do it. Don't want to do it. And then. Of course, he allows Chris Bauer from Sports Illustrated to go out there. Two things. Number one, um, I'm frustrated at myself that I wasn't more persistent because Ballard says in the story, you know, it took me a month of cajoling, et cetera, et cetera, to get him to do this. But the other part of that is that, you know, he wants to get back into the NBA. And the way to let people know that he wants to get back into the NBA is to do a sit-down, you know, ride-around basically with Sports Illustrated. It's not to do it with the Philadelphia Inquirer or Philly.com. If you want the world to know, hey, I'm out here, and if you fi- decide to fire your GM and want to hire me, here I am thinking big thoughts, y- you let everybody know that through a national publication, you know, like Sports Illustrated and a respected writer mm, like Chris he Ballard. You sound a little butthurt. You sound no, I think, that's, I think that's part of this. I'm not the one who suggested that first either. Sour grapes. Uh, Keith Pompey suggested that as well. Sounds like an excuse to me. I Sounds like I wanted a freaking I, story. That's I, what I wanted. Yeah, you failed. Chris Ballard beat you. Thanks. <laughs> Anything else you, you want to just, as uh, as Billy Crystal says in The Princess Bride, you want to get? Why don't you give me, give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on? God, man, when's the last time you watched a new movie? Uh, I'm going f- Saturday. I love The Prin- Princess Bride. I'm going like, Saturday. My wife and I are going to go see Arrival. Um, because, okay, I want to watch that. Yeah, uh, it's supposed to be great, and it has Amy Adams. And I would watch Amy Adams sit in a chair for two hours. Um, just, I think that, that might be illegal. She didn't have to do anything. She could just sit and. I'm yeah, cool with that. It's kind of weird, though. It's Amy Adams. Man. Like, like, just sit there and stare at her. Yeah, for two hours. What if, what, what if she gets up and is like, "Why are you staring at me?" And then I would tell her she's wonderful. <laughs> you know what? I'm kidding. If, We've taken this too far. If bodies ever start turning up around this place, I know, I know yeah. who I'm telling yeah. people to look at. Uh, I watched. Speaking of '90s movies, I watched American Beauty last night. Oh. I rewatched it. I, I liked that movie when it came out, and then the more, each time I see it. It gets worse and worse. Well, the best thing about it, and this was kind of the, uh, this was my takeaway from it last. I don't know why I watched it. It was on, it was maybe on HBO or Netflix or something like that. And I was bored and looking for something to watch. But the fascinating thing was like, like the thing, one of the things that fascinates me is like how different the things we care about are now as to like pre 9-11. Yeah. And like 
that was like two years before 9-11 and it was like um it was like the ultimate like you know uh fight club you know jonathan franzen like yeah. just suburban like these like, these, suburb, movie, like yeah. these like suburban like uh Oh, I'm a prisoner in my own, you know, yeah. nondescript house yes. with my like, you know, IKEA catalogs, and like now people are like, God, I hope I can be a prisoner in a house. Yeah, I, I, I just want, I just hope I have a house. Right, you know, exactly. Uh, exactly. So it's it's just interesting to kind of like look back, yeah, and see what all of us were actually worried about well, during like the least worrisome decade in American history. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's interesting, like. American Beauty is that way. Like the first time you, it I, does not age well. It doesn't age well <laughs> no. at all. It, it's not quite as bad though as Philadelphia. Philadelphia, okay, I come back and yeah, watch that. you got to go back and watch Philadelphia because, given how society has changed since that movie came out, it comes off as so heavy-handed yeah, yeah. now. Well, that's what American Beauty. Like, yeah. So, and again, we're going to talk about the Eagles shortly. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot to do this, but this this has been on my. See, this is like the kind of stuff I think about instead of finding about, your key, your driver's like, license. Instead of like, it's not even about finding my driver's license. It's about like when I take my driver's license out to like give it to the TSA person, mm-hmm. rather than like taking a moment and saying I'm gonna put my driver's license back into my wallet, I'm gonna put my wallet into my carry-on, and go through the security I'm gonna line, go, and then I'm gonna re- re- resume whatever I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. That whole time I'm just still thinking about American Beauty and how <laughs> different, how, like, and then all of a sudden, five minutes later I'm tying my shoes and I'm like, where the hell did my license ID go? go? You know. <laughs> Although it didn't doesn't happen when you're tying your shoes because your mind doesn't stop right. going until the next time you need your you're ID. Thinking about which, how Kevin in, Spacey tied his right, shoes in which American it, Beauty, which in my sense it, I did not realize it until three days later when I was trying to check into my hotel and see. <laughs> this was great, dude. I could do it. I could do a podcast series on Dave Murphy travel misadventures. Oh my god. Oh my god. Like I dropped my keys down, and so I dropped my my first spring training in Clearwater. The con- I was three weeks earlier I was covering high school girls soccer, <laughs> and now I'm like, it was a whirlwind. Put mm-hmm. it that way. And, uh, you know, I got my keys to my condo and I'm riding up, you know, after like a long day at, at spring training, which is not the party everybody thinks, but, uh, no. I'm riding up the condo elevator in my building in Clearwater. And you dropped your keys and down I dropped, the elevator shaft? Yes. I dropped my keys on the floor of the elevator and they slid over the floor and then down the, oh ele- my God. the, cr- the crack between, uh, the door, the and, door and, and the, the thing, floor, like yeah. the thing, a thing that like I never even noticed before, you know? <laughs> And I stood there and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. Because <laughs> it's like one of those things where you just you never even contemplate the possibility right. of it happening before. And I had no idea. So, I, you know, my my landlord was not happy. <laughs> I got to work late the next day. Anyway, this time they ask you for an ID to check into a residence in on Lake Union mm-hmm. in Seattle. And I didn't have one. And, uh, you know, literally their solution was for me to. Um, drive back to or uh, fly back to Philadelphia to get my ID and then oh come God. check in. So I ended up paying for my hotel room in cash. Yada yada yada. Long oh story short, God. Kevin Spacey. Yeah, it does not end. W- it does not age well. Although it does, I, g- I give the directors uh, Saul Mendez. I believe was uh, Sam Mendez. Sam Mendez was the director. Um, I read a lot about this mm-hmm. in Wikipedia. Obviously, yeah. after you know, um, after I watched American Beauty, but like it does pick up on a lot of things that I think. Um, like are born out by the future, like the the kids, mm-hmm. and just kind of like they're like, what do we do? No, the kids, are, kids are just like, who are these people? Yeah, who acting are, like this, mm-hmm. you know, We're like the the future millennials essentially yeah. are like, I would argue way more well adjusted than their parents. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like baby boomers are kind of try. You know, shout out to all the baby boomers <laughs> out there, but like, I feel like 
in a way, millennials are more well-adjusted than baby boomers. You I know think, what I'm saying? I like, think baby diff- boomers are the ones who were sitting there thinking that they were like, oh, woe is me. You know, I mm. have to order from Ikea again, you mm. know? Um, I don't know. Put it this way. They've, there's never been a millennial president. No, there hasn't. There hasn't. Um, and the two that ran this year were both baby boomers. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, so it's, like, interesting because, like, to me, the part of American Beauty that felt really heavy-handed was the... Uh, the next-door neighbor, Chris Cooper. Yeah. yeah. Like, and almost to the point, and, like, this is all stuff I'm thinking about now while trying to fall asleep last night. It's almost like he's a great example of, like, how the left kind of otherizes mm-hmm. um, conservatives at times. Yeah. You know, because, like, I would argue that... Um, so Chris Cooper in, in American, American Beauty Be- ends up make you know he's a marine and he's a closeted gay marine basically right but he's like so the whole movie he's like beating the crap out of his son because he thinks his son's gay and then at the end of the movie he tries to make out with Kevin, Kevin Spacey, Spacey which was just completely unnecessary right like, yeah we all got the point way yeah. before he tra- you know <laughs> right right um but like I I feel like kind of history has actually shown to be on Chris Cooper's side because like like this whole notion that conservatives who like conservatives would like beat the crap out of their son and kick them out of their house if they found out he was gay. In the end, we actually found out, given the way the tides of history have turned, I feel like, you know, most people when their child was like, "Hey, I'm gay," they're like, "Oh, well, I guess being gay is not so bad after all because right. I love my son." You right. know, like the Dick Cheney thing. Yeah, it's like that. Like to me, that is why the gay marriage thing has turned so fast in this country because people's kids start to come out of the closet mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, maybe I should reevaluate my exactly, <laughs> exactly. narrow-minded views." Yeah, instead of like, "Oh, I'm gonna beat my son in the face." Right. Uh, and refer to myself as Colonel, you know, <laughs> and then go try to make out with the next door neighbor. Yeah, like it was just like there's just a lot of like uh, it, it's a it's a very it's it's an example. Caricature, yeah, yeah, it's an example of how in a lot of ways Hollywood views a good portion of the country right. rather than what that portion of the country is actually right. like. And and one could argue the same thing happened in this, this past my, election. And this yes. was my we arg- discussed this in press the, boxes for. Two weeks now. This yes. was my argument throughout the election, like yeah. dating back to like two years ago when I stopped watching television because I got tired <laughs> about, I got tired of it. Um, you know, like my thing was always, hey, like to my liberal friends, and again, mm-hmm. like I'm socially, extremely socially liberal and like you know pretty issue by issue, middle of the road on on mm-hmm. a lot of economic things. Um, but like I would always always argue to my my friends, like look, like these aren't the people you're portraying, like everyone's not Chris Cooper. Like they right. have rational reasons for, and you be, know, beyond that, be, beyond that, like if, if even if they were that way, like try to persuade yeah, them exactly. that they're wrong, like treat them like a human being right. who is misguided. And therefore you're going to try to persuade them that they're misguided. Right. Don't treat them like they're terrible, horrible human beings because what ends up happening is they're going to right. perceive that and they're going to, Act out to that, and exactly. what happens is you get Donald Trump as your president. Right, exactly, you know? and and that's and still now it's like everyone's like, oh, how did all these Chris Cooper? You know, how do we lose the Chris Coopers? It's like right. they weren't Chris Coopers Cooper. to begin with. Right, like they were like, <laughs> right, you just treated them that right, way. Right, exactly, yeah, and like, looked at them that like way. The, like a nuanced Chris Cooper character would be like, oh man, like uh, you know, I'm struggling with my sexuality, but you know. I believe in this religion. You know, I, mm-hmm. I fought for this country that like told me I couldn't be gay in the military. And like, do you know what I'm saying? It's yes. not like this, like, yeah. all people suck yeah. and fight in Basara. You yeah. Know? It's like, that was interesting to me. Um, but then on the, on the flip side, there's a lot of things that I feel like they got very, uh, 
interestingly, it's just an, one of the more fascinating movies I've watched with hindsight. Yeah, um, yeah, it but, is. It's. I mean, and like I said, there are a lot of movies like that. It's. It's funny because you, as I mentioned earlier, you contrast a film like that with a film like Philadelphia, which is so now twenty three years since it came out, and when it came out, it was regarded as this groundbreaking. Mm-hmm look at AIDS and homosexuality in society and Tom Hanks wins an Oscar. But if you watch it now, it's so over the top and so heavy handed and so, you know, we're, we're so kind of past it now that it doesn't hold up at all. I right. mean, in, in any regard, you watch this and you go, really? Like they stack the deck that much, you know? Right. Um, it just, it's, it's funny, you know, it's, it's, I mean, and that's, that's the way society works. I, you go back and, you know, I thought of it. This Go ahead. Is, so the the thing, like the thing that I think makes the movie, like it's gonna it, to me, it's like a necessary. American Beauty is now a necessary part of the American kind of compendium mm-hmm. of you, you know what I'm saying, like mm-hmm. Birth of a Nation. You yeah. know, all these movies that kind of right. bridge over the river Kwai. You know, mm-hmm. just movies that kind of sum up where our national where we are at a particular time. Exactly. And the thing that that they were brilliantly prescient about was. Um, kind of this the, the coming explosion of over sexualization through media, media. and yes. because if you think about it like and then this is like I, I whenever i think i always end up getting depressed because, <laughs> because I, so like when you think about it like to me all almost all teenagers now are on instagram no but i'm saying what's her what's cheerleader's name the actress oh mina savari like all teenagers are now mina savari yes you know what i'm saying yes. we're like they're all kind of like like I canceled a week of camp this year and mm-hmm. it was like all like seniors and like kids are still kids like they're great but like they're like putting on makeup to take selfies to update on Instagram yep. you know while being in the woods for a week yes. you know what I'm saying yep. and like um, you know there's a great scene in um, and, and throughout the movie the kind of the creepy kid next door um, Wes Bentley is the actor Wes yeah. Bentley um, he's filming through a uh, you know handheld yeah camera which at the time was state of the art but like and, and it, you know, the technology scenes obviously come across as hokey, you know, 20 years removed. But, you know, there's a scene where he's kind of filming or looking across the yard into his girlfriend's window. And she's like, starts the movie by like Googling breast dog. Like she's one of these classic, yeah. like unhappy with herself type yes. kids. And uh, like she ends up like taking off her shirt. Do you know? Do yep. you remember that? Scene? Oh, yeah. yeah. And like that is like, it's like, wow, that's like really prescient when you look at you know, the way technology has kind of like normal, normalized, normalized kind of sex thing and, and all that kind of stuff. And the other, the other side of that, which I think it's the, the film is prescient about is about the, um, the need amongst middle-aged people in our society nowadays to not embrace adulthood and right. their age and the need to stay young. How right. does Kevin Spacey in that film start to turn his life around? He becomes obsessed with a teenage girl and starts working out and starts trying to look younger than he actually is. How does the Annette Bening character, you know, revitalize herself, quote unquote? She has an affair with a really shallow, right. insipid he's the best. man. Now, the, like he's the, the king, yeah, he's the, he's the and best. This is like but what, that's just, I mean, look at it nowadays. I mean, you know, how, how often do you see ads for hair dye yeah. and Viagra and all these things where... You know, and the whole idea of like a parent being their son or daughter's friend as right. opposed to being like their parent. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'll, I admit it, like I experience it on a day to day basis as a father where I will act a certain way with my kids and I'm self-consciously saying to myself, I'm being the dorky dad right now. But you know what? That's OK because it's making my kids happy. Yeah, they like they want that. They want that. Yeah. And like the be- like 
my frustration with the movie, it wasn't a frustration, but like when I, I look back on it and I couldn't figure out how, like with hindsight, it was tough to figure out, okay, what isn't, what is like blatantly, the things that I see blatantly wrong with this film, mm-hmm. are they blatantly wrong because I'm viewing them 20 years removed? Mm. Are they, is it something that I just have to figure out? Do you know what I'm yeah. like, like the kid, um, like, there was just there. There were some great scenes of nuance in mm-hmm. that movie, and I felt like if they would have just kept that tone throughout the whole, yeah. like part of it almost felt like farce, part of it yes. felt like satire, and yes. part of it felt like like Philip Roth, very yeah. Like, and, and I think the other part of it too is they it, the one one of the major flaws I had with it was I don't think it could quite figure out. Uh, maybe it couldn't figure out, but. I, I felt like the Kev, the Kevin Spacey's the, the Kevin Spacey character's behavior throughout the movie, mm-hmm. in, in a weird way, gets more it gets more self destructive. Yeah, and yet that seems to be celebrated in a way where same thing with the Annette Benning character. It's like you know they have that one scene where Kevin Spacey yells her, "You used to be fun. You used to be this, that, and the other thing, and you're and you're gone. Your life is dead now." And meanwhile, well, she thinks she's having a great time, but. Neither one of their behavior is really well adjusted in any regard at all, and I can't tell whether the movie thinks that what they're doing is a good thing or right. a bad thing. Yeah, exactly, you and, know? and I think I, maybe I would need a little more time yeah. to uh, you know sit down and think about it. But like one of the best scenes in that the movie to me, or one of the best shots, is when uh, you know Annette Benning is dragging Kevin Spacey to the gym to watch uh, their cheerleader daughter. Yes. But they're reluctant, clearly reluctant cheerleader daughter. And, and Kevin Spacey's like, she doesn't even want us here. Like, we're just like. Right. And like the whole, like, the daughter is talking to her, you know, popular future, mm-hmm. you know, coke addict friend that. Yeah. You know, and he's like, oh, my parents are coming. Blah, blah. But then like she like subtly glances up to see if they're still. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like yep. the whole, it was yep. just like very like, oh, that was very artfully done. Right. To show, which was, and it was very uh, like a real scene. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that kind of interplay between. Like yeah, you're like you know my dad's a dork and a creep, but at the same time, I want him to. I like, want I want him to care about me, exactly. and, and I want his approval at some level. And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I would have to go back and watch it again. I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times a long time ago. I, I would like to go back and watch it now as a parent of, you know, two boys as a married man, you know, because I really haven't seen it uh, in a long time. Because I think it would. I, I don't know how I'd feel about it. I don't know if I would resent some of the implications of it. I don't know if I would watch it again and go. Oh, okay. Now that part yeah. I get. That part rings truer now. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I get. I, I think I, the, the central thrust. I think I get more. Uh, I just feel like they kind of the execution was there, there. Was there was some again? It was just the heavy handedness of, yeah. of the execution. At even even like uh, you know the gay guys, which again I think was prescient. Their vision because when I you know even back then in the nineties, I mean we we signed Don't Ask Don't Tell and there was like nobody gave a peep about right. it. It was like right. yeah, I mean. Why would we let gay people in the military? Right. You know? Um, so, like, I just remember, like, my just, like, status quo ethos as a high schooler was, like, yeah, like, gay people are weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't do things like live right. in a suburban house. Right. You know? And, and jog down the middle of right. the street. And, like, to, yeah, <laughs> like, to me, like, it was very, um, like, watching that scene in 1999 versus in 2016, like, someone who has never seen that movie and watched it. In 1999, that's a racy scene. Right. In 2016, people like, like, what's the big, like, yeah. I don't get it. Like, right. what's, you know, what's right. the whole, you know, the partner thing? Like, the yeah. he's like, uh, this is my partner. Mm-hmm. And Chris Cooper's like. Snickers uh, at them, yeah. All right, what do you got to sell me? Yeah. No. <laughs> he's like, 
well, you said he's your partner. He's like, yeah. oh, not business partner. But it's like the one guy's an anesthesiologist. Right. And one guy's like a, you know, it's like very over the top. Yeah. But at the same time, back in that, back in the day, perhaps it had to be over the top in mm-hmm. order to, uh, to, to make its point. Yeah. But anyway, long story short, the, uh, just the fascinating thing about it is the stuff we cared about in the 90s mm-hmm. versus it, kind of the vapidity, the vapidity of the stuff we thought mattered. Yeah. We, that we thought like the whole movie kind of comes across as shallow. Yes, it absolutely You look does. at it and you're like, because it's people. We think in, this. We think yeah. these these are actually like penetrating studies of the human condition. Right. It's people in a beautiful suburban neighborhood <laughs> who aren't happy with their lives, and it's like in two years, you know, everything changes. Exactly. And in this, in the 15 years since, things have changed even more. I mean, when I was and, in high school, like like the military, like we didn't. I was thinking about this too, because um, one of the things that gets my craw at times is how like sporting events have kind of turned into this like celebration of the military celebration of militaristic might do you know Mm. what i'm saying like and again i got a brother who did two tours in iraq marine Mm. like come from a military family but like like that's that's stuff that's straight out of like i was thinking about this weekend because i feel like every feature story on espn now is somehow tied to a soldier or or the military and uh i don't know it's just like come on like can't we like like america's more than just our ability to kick your ass, you know, like, th- can we sell, why can't I, we celebrate? Think, why do we have to celebrate? I think a lot of all of this, I think a lot of this is a product of, I was saying this to somebody the other day. And this ties and we'll the Eagles at, with Malcolm Jenkins. Yeah. Is e- everything, whether it's social media, whether it's 24 hour news, whether it's whatever trends you want to put it on, everything is heightened mm-hmm. nowadays. Everything is heightened nowadays. You can't just kind of, let things be. Everything seems to be competing for attention because everything, in a way, everything is vying for attention. You know, it, whether it, the internet has made everything accessible to everyone. So the idea of like, oh, well, we don't celebrate the military enough, therefore we're going to celebrate it on these occasions. Or we don't talk about race enough, so we're going to talk about it on this. And mm-hmm. and it's very easy to kind of have everything be at, you know, as they said in Spinal Tap, like, the knob goes to 11 on everything mm. because that's kind of how we are nowadays. Everything is, every, we're competing for, everything is competing for attention and everything, every topic and every person who cares about every topic thinks that topic or that thing or trend is the most important thing. And so everything gets ratcheted up to the point where, you know, you get right super military celebrations at football games or you get, you know, super thoughtful panel discussions about race on ESPN, right. you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, can I can I care as much as I absolutely have to and then put my kids to bed and read a good book at night, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, the reason I brought it up was because in the 90s, I just remember, like, in the 90s, the military was not something that anybody ever celebrated. It was just like, oh, you didn't get into a college. Like, I guess I'll go to the Army. <laughs> like, that was literally what the... That was... In the 90s, that was what... That was what was normal. Like, in, in, in my high school... Uh, you know, the military was a way to pay for college. Like no one even ha- had a thought that they would actually end up going to war, which mm-hmm. was part of the reason why war was such a shock because mm-hmm. you had kids again, my, like mm-hmm. I'm here 2000. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I feel like my, the, you know, the, I am the OG millennial, you know, <laughs> and I kind of have that. I feel like our people in my cohort, my birth cohort kind of come at it from a interesting angle because mm-hmm. we were the last pre nine eleven class to graduate and i i distinctly remember like 
like when you had friends that were like, oh, I guess I'll go to the, it was always, I guess I'll go to the army. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, I'm going to go serve my country and, you know, fight for freedom. You know, it was mm-hmm. just like, Hey, GI bill sounds like a good deal, mm-hmm. you know? And then all of a sudden, like 2003, when it turned out, we weren't just going to like walk in backwards and tell them we're leaving, right. you know, like people were like, I think we had a, we, we got a little war weary, I think, because mm-hmm. a lot of the people never, th- you know, like you had people who were in the reserves for 30 years who had never ha- actually had to do anything. And all of a sudden they're being dragged away right. from their families to go over to, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. And like, you know, that's when you, you know, that's when you find out how you actually, how you actually care about issues when it's affecting yourself. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I, it's just interesting that like we, not, like it, that wasn't even a thought of the month. Like that's it's just wasn't even a possibility that we would go to war in the nineties. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I come at it from a slightly, because I'm older than a little older than you. I come at it, I think from, a slightly different perspective in that I was much, I, I was probably a little more immersed in the quote unquote way things used to be like in, in the idea of like, um, growing up reading a newspaper, um, you know, I, I was, I was old enough to have had my adolescence and my early 20 years fully formed in the world before right. all of that. So, you know, and, and there are people a, a little bit younger than me who, who did too, you know. I mean, I know guys, I've written about guys who in the late 90s decided, like, I'm going to the military regardless of whether we're at war or not. Mm. Um, you know, who didn't see it as just, like, the, the only, the, the last option because they didn't have any options. Right, they but my point is, like, even, like, those people, like, didn't even know, like, there was no possibility of a war. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember yeah. distinctly, like, sitting, like, in the, throughout the 90s, mm-hmm. like, my formative years. When we would like, re, you know, we would think about the army or like people going into our, you know, like you, the only time you ever heard about the army was like on like Thanksgiving when like the bases, like mm-hmm. Toby, Hen, I grew up near Toby Hen Army mm-hmm. Depot, you know, like we would mm-hmm. go there on field trips and it was always just like, yeah, oh, this is like a cool little thing. Like, so like, what do they do if like, since we're not fighting, you know, right. they just kind of like go about their business. Yeah. And I remember I used to think like, like how would America, why would America ever get into a war? Like who would ever like test us? <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Little like did we know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, like it, it happened through a possibility that no one could have envisioned, including the people, you know, in charge of our military, yeah. because this was, we were, you know, it was a very nation statist point of view where it was like, all right, Russia's done. There's absolutely no, right. like, like there's no way you could feel comfortable going into the army yeah. as a career rather than an actual, like, you know, fight a trade as a fighter. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I think that was long story short, that's what, that's, that was, that's what was most fascinating to me about, um, uh, American beauty because long story short, it's totally of that time. We never, the only time we ever had, you know, pregame military demonstrations was like maybe on, you know, well, 4th of July, maybe Mm -hmm. veterans day, maybe, but Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden it like became stock. I think we just started doing it after nine 11 and never stopped. So, okay. So think about the Chris Cooper character in that context then. I mean, because he's doubly for lack of a better word, he's doubly mockable in that film for that reason. I mean, he is a hardcore military guy, Right. Right. And that at that time makes, I'm sure made a lot of people go, oh, well, really? Yeah, that's actually a great point. Like, you know, that's and then he, it turns out that he's a closeted homosexual. So it's like, oh my God, this guy is just completely wacky and weird and everything. Right. You know, that, now that you mentioned it, that was another thing that jumped out at me that was like just weirdly anachronistic, you know, yeah. and whatever the proper word for anachronistic mm-hmm. in hindsight is. Uh, like he, his big, like, like when he was bad initially, not just not because he beats his kid. Right. Up. He's he's a weirdo initially because he introduces himself as Colonel. Colonel. Right. And like that doesn't. I think it 
it looks weird now because that wouldn't be weird now. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas like back then, but that's, that kind of proves my, like mm-hmm. that supports my point. Yeah. Whereas like that was viewed as quirky because the response is like, all right, buddy, we get it. Yeah. Like you're in the army, but like, come on, Colonel, what did yeah. you, like, what fire did you ever see? Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, perfect. Like it's, yeah. it's just that, that more than anything kind of distills what I was trying to say. Anyway, let's talk about Doug Peterson's challenge habit. <laughs> On the list of uh, awesome segues, that might be number no, one. No, because like I, so here's the thing. I think Doug Peterson's getting a bad rap uh, from for 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 like what? the challenge thing. Like I don't think he's stupid. I just think he needs to learn how to put the athlete side of himself down at pivotal junctures of the game. Like put it this way, I don't think he's going to repeat that mistake again. We're talking about all right. So the challenge, right? Yeah, the this challenge. Is one of the, the, this the is, second and eight play in the third or fourth it's, quarter. It's very rare, very rare that you get a challenge that is just self-evidently wrong. Yes, like this is not an opinion. It is like demonstrably wrong that the Eagles in the third quarter. Yes. of uh, Monday night's Monday game. night's loss to the Packers. Um, it's still a game at this point. Uh, you know, there's a second and ten uh, incompletion. That's or there's a second and ten incompletion that's called a catch. Mm-hmm. That or a first and ten incompletion that's called a catch, that uh, you know w- momentarily put the Packers at a second and eight. Yes. So, and it's clear on the video that it's not a catch. Like it's, right. this is going to be a winnable challenge. The problem is the Eagles have already used the challenge and lost. Therefore, if they use this challenge, they don't have any more challenges, right. even if they get it right. Right. Um, and the challenge was whether the, the only thing they would gain was second and ten versus second and eight. It was just you don't use that challenge there because what if you actually have each like is two right. yards ever? It's not be- worth burning the last challenge exactly. for that for that call in that situation. It's not worth it. And I get what you're saying. I think I think what people are missing about Doug is that. But listen. So after the game. Right. So right. after the game, right. Peterson, Jimmy, I'll make my point. Jimmy Kemsky, I think uh, from Philly, somebody asked him, you mm-hmm. know, a couple questions about it, and so afterwards. The kind of like conventional, the, the interpretation from most people is like, did you hear that dummy yes. try to explain? Like, what was he, th- like my buddy, my my buddy Bill, who's like the ultimate, fi- like he's just like the baseline Philadelphia sports fan <laughs> yeah. to me. You know, like he's like what I assume. Right. He's just my barometer essentially. And and he like the rest of the bell curve yeah. watches press conferences <laughs> regardless of, the, like this was right. a Monday night. This was him staying up. To the conclusion of a game, the Eagles clearly were going to lose with about eight minutes. With to about go eight minutes to go, and he stayed up to watch. And he Doug's stayed up press. to watch Doug's press conference yeah. afterwards to see, yeah. to get some answers for all these things <laughs> that that were driving him crazy during the game. It was great, uh, you know. So he texted me. So he, he and he texted me throughout the press conference, like just like his his running reaction to mm-hmm. uh, to to Doug. He was not a big Chip Kelly fan, by the yeah, way. Bill I'm Ryan. sure. Shout out to Bill, though. By the way, he's, I don't think he's a listener. Um, but he texts me and he's like, I can't, you, know, you listen to this guy. What does this guy think? You know, blah, 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 blah. And that was kind of like the media reaction too. Like, like, oh my God. Like, did you hear what that guy said? Like, he's, you know, he's, he's a dummy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but he's not. Like, he's just like trying to defend the indefensible. And I said at the end, like when people were like, oh, did you, someone said to me, did you hear how dummy sounded? I was like, yeah, to me, he sounded like a guy. Who knew he had messed re- up. Yeah. He sounded like a guy who was realizing there was no defense Right. He realized while he was talking that there were, he had no argument. argument. Right. <laughs> so it, yeah. so he just kind of. But at that point, we've all been that. We've all been that but, guy right, before. Right. But that I think that gets to. And today, part, sure enough, he admitted he, that he was. Yes. Wrong. But that gets to the the point I wanted to make, the broader point, which is, 
by no means has Doug Peterson been a perfect coach this season. I have some major issues, for instance, with the way he kind of, he seems to be a soft touch with respect to his players. And we can get into that in a minute with respect to Fletcher Cox. Mm -hmm. But that leaves out the possibility that like, that you can, that he can evolve and grow and change as a coach. Like not every Pulitzer Prize winning journalist starts out as a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Not every, you know, you mature, you learn on the job, and you get better at certain things. Now, it's entirely possible he's going to remain as clueless on challenges and as tongue-twisted in press conferences next year, assuming he's still the head coach. But he also might not. And, you know, yeah, I get the anger over the Eagles lose a game and the challenge is dumb, and therefore we're going to lash out over that. But by the same token, it ain't the be-all and end-all of everything. And... To, to kind of write the guy off at this point, I think is a mistake. Yeah, and to me it goes back e- even before the challenge. Like, all right, so I, I think that we in, in Philadelphia tend to be overly fixated on... What people say. Not even that, just that. Just the things that matter, the things that are visible, but are like the vocal minority, mm-hmm. essentially, of what a coach does. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, Doug Peterson earned the right to remain Carson Wentz's football coach for as long as Carson Wentz is here, mm-hmm. you know, again, the Andy Reed sort of, you know, right. early carte blanche we gave him after you know, yeah. he won with Donovan McNabb in his second year. But to me, Doug Peterson earned that right as soon as he showed that he could coach Carson Wentz and call a football game in which Carson Wentz looked good. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that play calling is one of the... It, to me, play calling is the number one responsibility of a coach, um, an offensive coach that you hire. Agree or disagree? Um, because there's just guys in the NFL that cannot do it. And and if Chip you're hiring could, a guy for that reason, right, then but, that's his number one. Let me rewind a minute. Okay. And, and a lot of this goes back to a lot of this is similar to the thought process on Phillies broadcasters, um, where people in this market just don't know. They don't know what a bad football coach actually looks like yet because there hasn't been one here since Ray Rhodes. Hmm. You know, for all Chip Kelly, and again, Chip Kelly's, you know, that vocal minority in his toolbox, you know, justifiably, I think, ended up leading to his demise here. Mm-hmm. But the guy could call a game and he could get the most out of his offensive players. Mm-hmm. Like Mark Sanchez, Sam Bradford, Nick Foles, on down the line, right. all had their best years as, as a pro. Right, with you know, Chip. With Chip. Um, you know, the Eagles were competitive. We're ex- the Eagles were competitive in most games, um, and they were expected to win. You know, they 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 made it through three years, ten and six, ten and six, seven and nine. Mm-hmm. Like now, look at like the the Joe Philbin Miami Dolphins, right? Um, or you know, just go on down the line. Yeah. Like, there's some really or the, the, the Indianapolis Colts and Ryan Gregson and Chuck mm-hmm. Pagano, you know, Pep Hamilton. Like there's guys who just don't understand, do not have a natural feel for calling a football game, mm-hmm. and their offenses resemble that. The Eagles offense clearly Doug Peterson clearly has an intuitive feel for what plays to call in what situations against what coverages and how to coach his quarterback to recognize all the things he needs to recognize mm-hmm. pre-snap in order to make the right throw right like to me it's foolish to think that Carson Wentz is just so uh you know preternaturally is that is that yeah. how you pronounce that yeah. word gifted mm-hmm. that he can just walk onto an NFL football field and start diagnosing coverages right. And, right. and making throws. Right. It's not an accident that the Eagle that in those first 
three games that the Eagles won, and they went three and zero. Carson Wentz looked like he always had he always knew where he was going. Mm-hmm. Uh, now again, he executed those throws, but like he always had the right coverage, always had the guy where it was going to be, and w- it was only when team started adjusting to that that he started to look a little bit more like a rookie but mm-hmm. the fact that that Doug Peterson could put him, could in, put those him in those situations against three other NFL teams who are coached by coaches yeah who are attempting to do you know what I'm saying right, like right Doug Peterson out like they didn't like I, I always go back to the, the the kind of the the extreme counter example I would use would be Mark Sanchez's rookie with the Jets right where the Jets literally went out of their way throughout that entire season to not give Sanchez an opportunity to blow it Right. A blow a game for them. They they built the best defense in the NFL. They ran the ball more often than any team has in, I think, something like 20 years. Like, literally two out of every three offensive plays were handing the ball off to um, Thomas Jones and Sean Green or whoever it was their running backs at the, their running backs were at the time because it was Sanchez isn't ready. Not only isn't he ready, we don't have the coaching staff. Brian Schottenheimer is our offensive coordinator. We don't have exactly. the coaching staff to get him ready. So we're just going to do everything we can to minimize his impact on a game. You're right. The Eagles went the exact opposite way. I would argue in large part because Doug Peterson was a quarterback and this is what he feels comfortable doing. Now, to bring it back to your question. What it, was my question, by the way? Is play calling That's the right. most important thing a coach can do? If it's a coach such as Doug Peterson that you've hired specifically because he's supposed to be a quarterback guru, he's supposed to uh, you know, orchestrate the offense, then yes, I get that. I, I would acknowledge that. But there are other things that um, I, I would wonder about the, the structure of what they've got set up in the staff and the front office um, because there are other things that, he, that Doug should be responsible right. for. And that gets back to my big beef with him, which is I wonder from a motivational, intangible kind of leadership standpoint if he's going to be able to extract as much out of his players as he possibly can. Right, but to, uh, I guess my response is we'll find out. That, I guess that, to sum up mm. my argument, is, like, why are we worried about that right now? Everyone, everyone, you know, we spend six out of our... Because seven, he might get it and he might not. And but I right guess what now, I'm saying I, is, like, we, we spend six out of seven days complaining about how the Eagles have no talent. Mm-hmm. And then we spend the seventh day wondering whether Doug Peterson will ever be a guy who can get the most out of his talent. Well, it's like, why are we even worrying about right now if, if the guy has no talent? Do you know what I'm saying? Because the talent he does have... You wonder about it in the context of the talent he does have. Well, And that's my whole thing is... The talent he does have, like Carson, like Carson Wentz has, everyone agrees that Carson Wentz has had a very, he's been a good, solid, he has a very right? solid rookie season. Yeah. So boom, like to me, like that's on the coach. Like Carson Wentz had the tools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but the question was whether he could do it at the NFL level. And Doug Peterson has put him in. He's gotten the most out of Carson Wentz, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And for that, I feel like the guy. I, th- I feel like we need to relax on the other stuff at times. Because, I, go ahead. No, argue. I was going to say I would argue the opposite because. There's going to come a time, presumably, that he's going to have talent. So, therefore, the question becomes, are you going to wring enough out of it? That, like, that gets some of you. I know you wanted to talk about Fletcher Cox, and I wrote a column for Tuesday, for, uh, for Wednesday, about the season that Fletcher is having, which, you know, f- from the numbers over the last seven weeks is not great. Now, there's a major debate about how much of that is due to him and whether he's getting, he's not playing as well as he had in the past, or whether he's getting double teamed and, it's harder for him to play well because teams are fo- you know, focusing their attention on blocking him, in which case the Eagles better go out and get some new defensive linemen because they're getting single block, single, singled up and they're not making the kind of plays they ought to be making. I get all that. My question with respect to Doug and Fletcher is, Doug on Tuesday spent a lot of time 
kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of making excuses for a penalty that Fletcher committed that contributed to the Eagles losing Monday night. You know, the third time this year that he's committed a roughing the passer penalty on a third down when the defense could get off the field and the third time that the opposing offense went on and scored a touchdown on that drive. And my question, I guess, is Doug always talks in... You can tell he's a former player when mm-hmm. he talks. You can tell the respect that he has for for his players, that he likes them. That the fa- you know, the, like Jeffrey Lurie said, you know, after firing Chip Kelly, you got to have an open-hearted coach, all that kind of stuff. But my question would be, is that pose necessarily the best one to extract the very best from these guys? And it's a valid question, you know. And and I wonder about that with respect to Fletcher Cox. Like Fletcher Cox is a really good player, but. There's a difference between being a really good player who works hard and taking that and and having somebody kind of show you the way to take it up even another another notch and to be really great. Like you you know, um, you're gonna laugh at me about this, but I don't care. I've watched the movie with my wife a couple of times. There's a scene in The Devil Wears Prada where at least it's from 19. Yeah, it's, at least it's from <laughs> it's after from, the 2000s. Yeah, in the last five or six years where. Not, well, the Stanley. It's not from the last five whatever, or six years. Whatever there, it buddy. was. Um, former, former. Uh, uh, did you know Anne Hathaway's parents went to? We LaSalle. went to LaSalle. That's right. Yes. So Anne, there's the scene I'm going to talk about involves Anne. Anne Hathaway. Hathaway was young Dave Murphy. You want to talk about a, a girl Dave Murphy used there to sit go. down and watch? So anyway, so uh, the Stanley Tucci character, who's one of the editors of the mag- the fashion magazine where Anne Hathaway works, tells her basically like you think you're working hard, but you're really not. Like you think you're running around doing all these things and, and somebody's going to pat you on the head and say how wonderful you are and you're not. You don't get how hard you really have to work and what you really have to do to make it at this level. And I do feel like at times Fletcher Cox and the other guys on that e- on the Eagles team kind of need that. They need somebody to come along and say, not you're a good player and I played and I know you're a good player because I know a good player when I see one. That they need like, look, you're good but you can be better. You can be a lot better, and here's how you do it. I understand. So, so, and that I think that's that's a point that can coexist with my point, which is that I just always hear people say when they're denigrating Doug Peterson, they say, "Oh, we just got another Andy Reid." No, I see. I don't. I don't see. Yeah, I don't. I don't denigrate when I denigrate Doug. I right, don't no, denigrate no, but him I'm, for that I'm talking about. Like, yeah, you're talking about other people. Yeah, but yeah. even like the media, like yeah. we we we're like so fixated on like all these like oh you know went to the Andy Reid School of Time Management, dude. Like Eagles should hope that he's another Andy. Yeah. Reed. And then once once they get to the point where you know they haven't won a Super Bowl under Doug Peterson, they can start wondering whether it's right. time for a change. But you're like, if I were to take, you know, if you if you offer me any coach in the NFL. To, to, you know, steal from another team to build an expansion team. Like Andy, Andy Reid would, would be the guy. No, nah, he would be in my top five. I mean, Bill Belichick would be well, the guy. Well, okay, all right, yeah. But uh, he'd be, he would be a guy. He would probably be number two for me. Uh, maybe because he P- basically... Yeah, Pete Carroll. He basically did it in 1999 when right. he took over that franchise. But my point is, so, so... And again, this isn't the argument, but just for, you know, craps and giggles. Uh, you know, I would say Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll, obviously, mm-hmm. to me, are number one and number two. Uh, you know, I think there's arguments that can be made for Mike Tomlin. Um, but Mike Tom, I mean, Mike Tomlin didn't have to. I'm just do saying it. there's. Argu- yeah. I'm just saying there's yeah. argument to me that like these are the only people that I could even see arguments right. being made for. Right. Them. Like uh, the, the the reason you put Belichick and Pete Carroll at the top of that list is not merely because they've won Super Bowls and their teams are still great. It's that they did that. Like right. you know, the Patriots were nothing before Belichick and Brady got there. The Seahawks were a middling exactly. team when Carroll got there, and now look where they are. Yeah. So so you know, and again. 
maybe there's somebody obvious I'm missing, but clearly Andy Reid, like to me, Andy Reid would obviously be in the top five. Mm-hmm. So it's just my whole thing is like, look, if your big concern with Doug Peterson is that he's going to be another Andy Reid, then like we've got nothing to talk about. Right. Like let's just like right see what happens. You know, like that's what you should hope for. Mm-hmm. Um, I just put it this way, and it, and this is the way I feel about your Fletcher Cox. Uh, I don't want to say fixation, but just your you know accent on him. Accent on him, like. On the list of things that are wrong with the Eagles right now, like Fletcher Cox is way, way, way down low. And I would even argue, like that penalty the other night, I mean, he's taken some dumb penalties this year. But that, that penalty the other night, like he was, he had a guy, I mean, he was like t- making an outside move on his guard, and the guard was like up in his like chat. Like mm. the guard had his pads, and, and Cox, from what I remember, was kind of like trying to like get Rodgers as he was flowing past him. And he just kind of like, you know, clotheslined him. But mm-hmm. I, you, the way, when I watched the replay, I don't think Fletcher Cox even saw where Aaron Rodgers was. Like, I think he might have thought Aaron Rodgers still had the ball. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he took one shot earlier. His first, his first, uh, maybe the Lions game it mm-hmm. was. But, like, it was a stupid pet. Yeah. Like, that was stupid. Whereas yeah. this one was almost like, like, ah, come on, Fletcher. Like, you, like we can't you have it, that. Yeah. But at the same time, you could see how it would happen within the, you know, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I you get agree you or disagree with I, the characterization? I, I think it was a little, I think, I think against a quarterback. Was it as, gre- as egregious as the one in Detroit against Matthew Stafford? No. Is it hard to be mindful of the fact that it's Aaron Rodgers and so the officials are going to be more sensitive to anything that comes near his head or neck or anything right. like that? Yeah, it's hard. But you got to do it, you know? And and it just... It, it. I understand what you're saying. It still can't happen. It's something that every defensive lineman... That, that sort of rule, that sort of standard has impl- been in place long enough that a defensive lineman's got to got to be mindful of it and can't let that happen, particularly in a play like that where you're going to get off the field. Um, and that's what I mean. And maybe I'm holding – like, I don't look at Fletcher Cox. Like, I don't write that column saying one of the Eagles' big problems is Fletcher Cox. No, I, Cox. I don't think – You know, but what I'm saying is I, I am holding him to a bit of a higher standard because yeah. there's, a, you know, there's a lot expected of him. You know, forget the money. Like, you know, there's a lot of expected of him. And, and don't, I wouldn't say don't forget the money from the standpoint of – like, if you're going to pay a guy, like, it's not his fault they gave him $63 million right. guaranteed and maybe $103 million. Like, that's on the Eagles and Harry Roseman for deciding that the defensive tackle was worth that much money. And I would argue he probably isn't. You know, I'm not sure there's any defensive right. tackle in the league who's worth that much. But it's still attached to him. They still are expecting him to be a, a fully dominant player. And he hasn't quite been that. No. Now, maybe it's because he's getting double teamed. Maybe it's not. But... But I think, like... And I just kind of fundamentally disagree with, like, I think Fletcher Cox has been fine outside of the penalties. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think there's very good ways to quantify defensive line play. Mm-hmm. But, like, to me, are we really going to focus on Fletcher Cox hitting a quarterback late when Connor Barwin doesn't even get to the quarterback to hit him late? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, like I see And that guy point. makes yeah. a lot of money, too. Yeah. And, like, look, Connor Barwin seems like a upstanding citizen and everything but like he's been invisible invisible, invisible yeah. this year yeah. and and so is Vinnie Curry the guy who's supposed yeah. to be able to replace him yeah. you know and to me that I, I guess I look at it more like from Fletcher Cox's perspective mm-hmm. where I'm like like I would read the paper and be like really like you guys are coming after me like you guys know I'm surrounded by a bunch of turds <laughs> and like you're still gonna come after me like yeah. that's not very you, you that's know what I'm saying? fair that's fair and but and I left that open in the piece that and you didn't really come after him no I, just it was just more and, and it was good it was fine like yeah. I'm not no, I mean, and, and like I said, you know, there's there's one of two things going on here. Either, you know, he's a very good player who's getting double teamed, and the guys around him aren't nearly as good right. as the Eagles are, have made them out to be, or 
he's got to play better. And in fairness to you too, like Doug Peterson definitely was given the opportunity after the game to say that everything I just said, like, yeah. and he didn't, he's he like, didn't. this is he a penalty. Was, yeah. Boom. Done. Yeah. And he, and he also said like, our, our defensive line has to be better, which yeah. frankly I thought was unfair on his part because like, what are they supposed to do? You know, mm. like, I mean, it's, first of all, it's Aaron Rodgers, mm. you know, it's, it's the Green Bay Packers who as of before Jordy Nelson got hurt last year, were like the greatest show on turf yeah. too. You know, and like he, like Aaron Rodgers has done this to, to better defenses than the Philadelphia Eagles. You mm. know, it's, I mean, look, it's really tough when you got cornerbacks like Jalen Mills yes. and Nolan Carroll and Leotis McKelvin. You know, this defense—the fact that this defensive line has done what it's done to me to me—is a is a miracle in itself. You know, like they played they played way better than I thought that they were. Like Brandon Graham to me has been, you know, he's a, been terrific. He's, he's been, been a all terrific. pro level, mm-hmm. you know, performer. Uh, you know, Benny Logan when he's been in there has has been way better than I gave him credit for heading into the season and again like Fletcher Cox has been Fletcher Cox look I always thought Fletcher Cox was a little overrated mm-hmm. like I don't think he's uh he's not JJ Watt like, yeah he's not, not he's not Von Sue. Miller like he he's doesn't not, yeah, yeah. He, he has never done to a team like what, he doesn't he, he's never done to a team what Nottingham Sue did to the Eagles last year no against or what Von Miller did to the Panthers in the, right in the Super Bowl but he's know? but he's you know definitely worth the money and and I think just a very minor concern hmm. you know i think he's probably more frustrated i i think maybe a lot of what what he's going through is frustration too because hmm. look i think these guys really thought that they were they were going to have something this year and it's just been like a whirlwind year like yeah. i think i think uh you know and i give peterson credit for that like i think that there was i think this i think they i think that he very easily could have lost the locker room before he had it with everything that happened this offseason and well, I kind think, of the weird power arrangement and, and the I quarterback think, back and yeah. forth. And well, I think he was put in a really tough position by the front office on multiple exactly. levels. That's what I, yeah. You know, like, I don't know if you saw um, any of the, the social media stuff coming out of Eagles on Wednesday afternoon, but Jeff McClain has a quote from Malcolm Jenkins. You know, Jeff, apparently, somebody asked him, you know, how does it feel to be a veteran on a team that seems to be rebuilding? And, um, and... Malcolm said something to the effect of we're not rebuilt, you know, Howie may be the one who's rebuilding, but we're not, you know, that sort of thing. Like, um, did he say Howie by name? He, he mentioned Howie. Yes. By name. I, I have to dig up the quote to be, to I be love completely, ac- yeah, <laughs> completely accurate. But the point is that, you know, that's a really tough position to be in. Like they decided, and, and we've talked about this and I've written about this a million times. Like they're like, we're going to play both sides of the fence. We're going to kind of rebuild, but kind of try to compete. And our, you know, what are we trying to do? We don't really know. And say, Sam Bradford's going to be our starter, but then we'll trade him for a first-round pick, and we'll give it over to Carson Wentz. And you know, we're starting a rookie quarterback, but the offense might be more dynamic with Carson Wentz. So who knows? Blah blah blah. And then all of a sudden, you get off to a three and zero start, and expectations change, and now they're turning out to be the team we kind of always thought they would be. But you've got a lot of guys in that locker room who are going to be here for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's that's the issue, I think. That's that's the challenge that Doug has. You know, he said yesterday, uh, Tuesday, that, you know, we're going to find out over these last five weeks who wants to be here. Well, there are a lot of guys who are going to be here, whether they show the Eagles anything in the final five weeks or not. Vinnie Curry, Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz, Malcolm Jenkins, you know, these guys aren't going anywhere. Carson Wentz, these guys aren't going anywhere. You know, there's there's no like, you know, fighting for a roster no. spot there. You know, certain positions there are, wide receiver certainly, maybe, you know, I don't even know cornerback. I mean, who are you going to keep at cornerback? But it's not like these guys are going to go like, oh, shoot, if yeah. I don't play well over these last five games, they might cut me. Like, you know, Vinny Curry's like counting his money, right. man. Most of the guys who have something to earn are the guys that you're trying to replace. Right, yeah. Know? Like, Leotis McKelvin's going to play hard <laughs> for the last five weeks, and it still might not be enough. 
Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I just think that, um, yeah, like, I, I would be interested. So this was my thing going into the year with, with the whole thing. E- even when you, even if Carson Wentz turned out to be, you know, everyone seems to understand that Carson Wentz is, is, is good, mm-hmm. you know? And, yes. You know, even the veterans. Um, but you can't tell me that at this point in the season, which is exactly the point I envisioned, where you're like, all right, well, everyone understands we're not a Super Bowl contender. We're probably not going to the playoffs. And yet down in Dallas, there's a team that was in our exact situation uh, coming into this season. Mm-hmm. And rather than doing what we did, they drafted Ezekiel Elliott drafted in the Prescott. first round, drafted Dak Prescott, and, you know, whatever, made it work. Yeah. So, like, the, and it, it's a fascinating question, choose your own adventure, kind of butterfly effect type of thing. Um or, or parallel universe type of thing where like what if that was the Eagles? Like right. what if the Eagles had drafted Ezekiel Elliott? Like like take take Carson Wentz off this team. Mm-hmm. Put say Sam Bradford on this team, Dak Prescott on this team, and Ezekiel Elliott on mm-hmm. this team and like uh I would argue like put a um you know like a cor- like Vernon Hargraves mm-hmm. or Jalen Ramsey on this team. Mm-hmm. Um and then say a third like a second or a third round running back. Right. Jordan Howard yeah. or whatever. Uh, what is it, you know what is this team's record now? Like that that's a fascinating question. I mean, you can't tell me that guys like Malcolm Jenkins and Brent Selleck aren't sitting there being like, man, you know, if we had just added a cornerback to uh-huh. this defense, like we could be winning, actually winning a lot of these games that we're in. And if we could just add a you know offensive lineman or wide receiver or running back to this this offense, like yeah, Carson Wentz is definitely the quarterback you want for the next decade. But like. Could we have, especially in a year where the NFC is up for grabs, could we have done what Dallas is doing this year? Well, that gets back to, go back to the week they played the Falcons. And both you and I ended up writing about Matt Ryan. And go back and look at part of the reason that the Falcons, after getting to the NFC Championship game in the 2012-2013 season, I think it was, um, missed the playoffs after that, for three years after that. Part of the reason they did is because they traded five draft picks to go get Julio Jones, uh, you know, right. maybe the best yeah. wide receiver in the game. But what that led to was in, I think, the 2012 or 2013 draft, they got no NFL players, no long-lasting NFL players at all. Every single player that they took, I went and researched this, every single player that they took, I think in the 2012 draft, was off their roster by the beginning of the 2015 season. So what happens, you you know, you can't help your defense. You can't build a better team around Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. And you miss the playoffs for three years, and it takes you that long to kind of get back to the point that you can become a viable contender again. And, and you're right. This gets to the heart of what we were talking about and have been talking about really all year. If you had kept Sam Bradford, and I'm not saying Sam Bradford's better than Carson Wentz. Right. That's not the point. The point is if you keep Sam Bradford, then you can take those draft picks and use them for something else. Use them in other areas that you needed to shore up to make the total team more competitive. Now it becomes more challenging to do that because you've sacrificed some draft picks to get Carson Wentz, and you've tried to fill some gaps, and you haven't really filled them. You know, who are you bringing back in cornerback in this team? I would assume Mills, but Nolan Carroll, Leotis McKelvin. You know, do you really want these guys? Are you going right. to count on Ron Brooks for another year? Um you know, what do you do there? What do you do with linebacker? You know, because Jordan Hicks is a pretty good player. Michael Kendricks can't get on the field. Um, I, I assume Nigel Bradham's going to be here, I guess. Right. Um, 
you know, what do you do with defensive line now? The Connor Barwin's probably going to be gone. Right. You know, and, and I guess like the question, like, and, and again, this could be any, this, this could be a fun podcast to do down the road. God knows we can't do it today because no. we got to wrap this up. Given our uh, inside the actor studio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, departure from i give this podcast two thumbs up <laughs> uh-huh. but yeah like look like let's 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 just say for example let's give one situation like let's say that they you know let's say instead of trading up they stayed at uh what were they at 13 they were at 13 then moved up to eight um you know and i guess like the, the other question we haven't even considered is given how demarco murray has played this year what yeah. if they had what if they picked the wrong running back yeah. to get rid of? what if they had what if what if they had kept demarco murray um stayed at what were they originally at? 12? 13. 13. Um, you know, and drafted Laramie... T- um, let's say, you know, Laramie Tunsil, It's I think he's played very well this year, and the Dolphins would not give that pick back. But, mm-hmm. um, like, let's say they had you know traded up marginally and, like, drafted... Let's say Leonard Floyd, mm-hmm. who went number nine. Okay. And, and has gotten hurt since, but is, was very good this year. Um, you know, and so now all of a sudden, Leonard Floyd's your, your pass rusher, mm-hmm. you know, opposite whever. And then they take Jordan Howard in the fifth round, you know, and, you know, maybe to back up to Marco Murray or whatever. Um, and then in third in the third round, you know, maybe they take say Malu or maybe they take, you know, who knows? Like who knows? if you have Sam Bradford in there, you know, and all of a sudden or let's say you just add Ezekiel Elliott to last year's mm-hmm. team. You know, there's just all these. These are all things that the players thought were going to happen before they traded up for Carson yes. Wentz. And now that the season has kind of faltered. You wonder if they, you wonder if any of them start to question, yeah, uh, you know, the overall direction of things. Yeah, I think, and Malcolm Jenkins singling out Howie and you know as rather than Howie and Doug, I think the interesting, I think the thing about that is it e- very easily could have been a they instead of Howie. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yep. Like I think I think Peterson came in and did a very good job of showing the players. Uh, that he was on their side, that he had their back. The problem is that he has done that, and then things happen after he does that. He he had Josh Huff's back. Mm-hmm. Josh Huff isn't here anymore. He had Nelson Aguilar's back right up until the moment Nelson Aguilar was inactive. So the question the players are probably asking is how much power— it's nice that he has our back, but how much power in the yeah, end does he really have? The more I think about the Aguilar and the Huff thing, the Huff thing more than anything, Like the more I think about it, I think he might have, Doug Peterson might have got the sense that, like, the players might have been done with Huff, too. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, nobody really. I don't know. Like, I the mean, lo- that locker room afterwards, to me, wasn't nearly as, like, quizzical over the the change. At, like, I, like no. put it this way. If you're a veteran no. on that team and you find out that your, like, marginal wide receiver who has gotten, like, a third chance now has a bag of pot in his car during yeah. the season. Yeah. And as you know, like forget yeah. about the gun and stuff. They're just like, dude, why are you smoking pot, pot. during the yeah. season? Like, <laughs> yeah. like you're, you're a dummy. Like, yeah. like, you know, it, it affects your memory and you can't remember the plays as it is. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. maybe there are players who are like, yo, Doug, man, like, I don't think anyone would complain if you got rid mm. of this guy. You know, like, I think that's, that's a possibility. Yeah. Aguilar, like, they're in Carson Wentz is like, dude, why is this guy in the NFL? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, he's just not a good talk. He's, he, Carson Wentz is probably as frustrated, uh, was as frustrated with Nelson Aguilar after that game as as uh, you know the fans were, yeah. and I think that, um, like for every look, he, maybe he had Aguilar's back, but maybe he realized that like in having Aguilar's back, he was like not having the, he was not having the back of other players yeah. who were like, yo, why are you standing by this guy? Like, 
get him out of here for, yeah. you know, let, let, let's move on, you know? Anyway, that I've been talking for way too much. Yeah. Um, Next week, we'll review No Country for Old Men. Yeah, and let's, <laughs> should we have a, let's have a, like, uh, uh, no, well, now we got to get, like, Stephen Ray and, and, you oh, know, yeah, Molly absolutely. Eichel in here to talk movies. A, uh, yeah, but they're very random movies. Yeah. Well, like I said, we'll do No Country for Old Men and Godzilla. And, you know. <laughs> I just watched Pulp Fiction again. Again, a great movie. I know. I'm, movie. I went on a Tarantino kick. Uh, I'm working my way through Reservoir Dogs, too. Uh, I, re- I can remember seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater. Uh, and it's one of the few movies that, like, the instant you see it, you remember every single thing about it. It's like you've seen it once, but you've seen it a thousand times because it just it stays with you. The way it did. One of All my, right, well, one of my ten. Let's favorites. let these people go. It's also, get, also getting hot in here. Okay. I think that's why we've been talking for so long because the temperature. Yes, steadily rises. I, no, well, I think that like uh, usually the temperature lets us know when the podcast <laughs> is over, and because it was so cold in here, because it was I... so cold in here when we got here, it is only now getting up to that point where like holy hell, I can't wait to get the hell yeah. out of here. Well, we're out of here then. All right, see ya.